You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning. Hopefully by now you're, you're fully awake, you've, you've sung worship songs that have energized you, you've been encouraged by interacting with others, you've felt the joy with Russ and Megan as you've heard about what God is doing in their lives, and now we get to turn to God's good word. And so before we do that, I'm going to pray really quickly, um, and I just pray that you would, you would join me as we ask God to speak to us through his living and powerful word. Father... Thank you. Thank you for loving your people so well. Thank you that we can be sure that you love us because you gave your son for us. And if you gave the son, how much more do you not want to show us how to really live? Thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for the clear picture it gives us of Jesus. I just pray that in the next several minutes, that we hear your voice, not mine. That, that anything I say that's, that's unhelpful or confusing would just fall away. That it would be forgotten. But everything that's of you would just be sticky and it would stand. And that you would speak to each of us right where we need to hear you. Uh, and that you'd help us not just to be here, but to respond, God, in love and trust and worship and obedience. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So we're, we're in our second week now of a series exploring some of the most famous passages in the Old Testament book of Isaiah that point to Jesus. A group of poetic prophecies called the Servant Songs. These four songs introduce and develop a mysterious figure that Isaiah calls the servant of God. And like pieces in a puzzle, each song gives us a preview into Jesus' life and ministry hundreds of years before he steps on the scene, culminating in a famous poem in Isaiah chapter 53 that points very clearly to Jesus' suffering on the cross for us. And so over the next four weeks, we're strapping in to see how these poems can point us to the beauty of God's plan as we go through the season of Lent and prepare to remember Jesus' death and resurrection on Good Friday and Easter. Last week, Nick introduced us to the book of Isaiah and to the genre of Old Testament prophecy. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I highly encourage you to take some time this week to to check it out on YouTube or our podcast archives. I'm not being paid to say that. Uh, It provides some really helpful historical context, um, especially if you're new to Old Testament prophecy. I can't recommend it enough. But this week, we're launching with the first of the servant songs in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. If I spontaneously combust today, it is because I love this song so much. Uh, This poem, this is our introduction to the character of the servant. And since this is the first one, I've been thinking a lot lately about introductions or what happens when we view something for the first time. Uh, Pilot episodes of TV shows, first chapters of books, unboxing videos, if you've ever seen those. 
Beginnings are interesting because they set our expectations, right? They frame in what we think someone or something is going to be like. Take the pilot of a TV show. The first 15 minutes tell you a lot about the characters, the conflict, the writing of the show. And a show may go through some twists and turns from the first episode, and we'll definitely see that in the servant songs. But we make a lot of judgments based on the first thing we see. And so Isaiah knows that, God knows that. Uh, And so in some ways, because this passage is like the pilot of the servant songs, God, what God emphasizes here is really important. He's giving a sneak preview of his son to his people hundreds of years before Jesus arrives. And so we want to look at what God emphasizes here about the servant. And so what I want to ask today is from this song, who is the servant? How does God set up this character? How does he frame our expectations of what the Savior will be like? And as we continue, I think what we'll see is that the servant is not what what 8th century Israel, Isaiah's listeners, would have expected. Yes, the servant is empowered by God. He has an incredible mission. But the way the servant fulfills that mission is very unusual. It's not by overwhelming force or by trampling on his enemies, but by a gentleness that quietly cares for the broken and the hurting. And my hope this morning is that we take our first look at unboxing the servant. We'll be moved to worship and repentance, and even as Russ said, joy this morning. Fitting things as as we prepare to celebrate on Easter. So first, we'll look really briefly at the build-up to this song, at the passage right before this, to see the context for this unboxing. And then, when we read the song, we'll focus on two characteristics of the servant that Isaiah really highlights for us. And as we read, I want to encourage you to keep two things in mind. Remembering that that while prophecies like this often have many layers of fulfillment, we're focusing on the fact that the servant is Jesus that it is fulfilled in Jesus. So the first thing to keep in mind, what would it mean for me to believe that Jesus really is like this? How might my life change if I saw Jesus this way? That's the first question. The second thing to keep in mind is, is how does God want me to imitate this as a follower of Jesus? All right, so let's go. We're going to start by looking at the context for this first servant song. So we'll rewind to the poem, the sermonette, right before Isaiah chapter 42. At the end of Isaiah 41, and I'll paraphrase a bit for the sake of time, Isaiah imagines a courtroom drama, a legal show, where God calls the idols of the nations around Israel to account challenging them to prove that they're really gods. And in this courtroom case, it's almost silly how the defendants look. God says that the idols have no spokesperson, no one to to speak for them in court. They can't reveal any truth. The idols can't do anything, good or evil. And two times in this case, 
God stops to call on his listeners to just take in the verdict here on these idols. In Isaiah 41, verse 24, he says, Behold, you are less than nothing, and your work is less than nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Ouch. And then in verse 29, he says, Behold, all of them are false. Their works are nothing. Their cast metal images are wind and emptiness. Notice how in both of those instances, they start with the word behold. God's calling them to look and see. That's important. Nick told us last week that repetition creates emphasis. And here, Isaiah is inviting his listeners to take a hard look at the idols that they find attractive and to recognize that they're worthless. No truth, no power. The verdict is that they're nothing. And that verdict can feel kind of distant to us, especially if we think of idols as just statues or maybe like the Greek gods. But those statues were just stand-ins for the different ways that Isaiah's listeners were trying to take control in their own lives. In that time, it might be military might, or luxury at others' expense, or charismatic leaders that they, that they relied on for control. And today, we have plenty of things like that of our own that we look to for security or stability, Maybe not statues, but ideals, like, like nationalism, or safety, or our dreams of a high-paying job and a happy family. Or maybe we look to a system of thought for security, or a particular person we trust. We are loaded with idols, and our attempts to control our lives are just as empty as that courtroom scene. And remember, Isaiah is delivering this message originally to Israel. And Israel was under pressure from a lot of threats at that time. And they were tempted to look at the different idols around them as a quick fix to their problems. And so Isaiah has to show them the emptiness of those self-sufficient fixes before the servant can be seen as God's good answer. And that's important for us, too, as we prepare to see the servant song. We can only see Jesus for who he is when we see our idols, our attempts to take control for what they're not. It's only when we recognize the inadequacy of our own solutions that we can see the goodness of Jesus. And so that is the context for the unboxing of the servant. And at the end of this, this little courtroom case, Isaiah launches into another song that also starts with that word, behold. It's picking up on that pattern. But this time, Isaiah changes tune to invite his listeners to see the servant for the first time. And so I'm going to read right now the whole servant song. This is Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, if you want to flip there. And then we'll take some time to break down how this song unboxes Jesus as a a rescuer who is both just and also gentle. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bent reed he will not break off, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. This is what God the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they sprout, I proclaim them to you. It's breathtaking. So how does God introduce the servant here? Well, the first thing I want to point out that leaps off the page about the servant is that he is just. His mission is the work of bringing forth justice. You can see it in verse 1. It says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice. And remember, repetition creates emphasis. The English teacher in me is just freaking out. <laughs> All these references to justice drive the point home. The servant's mission is justice. And I think we have to pause here because that word justice is really charged in our moment. Maybe when I first said the word, you had a really strong reaction, either positive or negative. Because we're in a moment that has all sorts of arguments about what justice means on the right and the left and everywhere in between. And I think because of that, justice has become a really abstract or almost empty term for some of us. Just a word that people fill in with whatever cause they want. In my small group this week, we were talking about this passage and, and someone admitted it's kind of hard to picture what justice is here. It can feel kind of intangible. But that word justice in the Old Testament, it's not meant to be intangible. It's a rich word. It has a lot of nuance. Um, we can't go over it all here, but it's meant to be a concrete word. And the word here is, pardon my pronunciation, uh, mishpat. It appears in different variations more than 200 times in the Old Testament. It's, it's a core part of God's character, who he is, and it's something that he clearly demands of his people and of leaders. And again, while it has many shades of meaning, perhaps at its most basic, mishpat means putting things right. 
Justice is putting things right. It's taking action to restore things to the way they're meant to be. Tim Keller says it means giving others what they're due, whether that's punishment or protection or care. And so sometimes, mishpat means going after those who do wrong and bringing consequences to those who harm others. But other times, it may mean rehabilitating and restoring an offender, putting right a broken relationship. That's also justice. Often, it means protecting or providing for those who are vulnerable or at risk. And in the Bible, justice is almost always paired with four groups that are often called the quartet of the vulnerable. Justice for widows, orphans, immigrants or refugees today, and the poor. People whose position makes them especially vulnerable to having wrong done to them. So mishpat can mean enacting policies and plans that protect those people, that enable them to receive their due. But in all of these images, justice is always an action that puts things right, that restores God's original plan for what things should be. And here's the thing that separates this from a lot of visions of justice around us. God is the one who decides how things should be. God decides what's good and right. Old Testament scholar Christopher J.H. Wright observes that, that justice for Israel was rooted in the character of God. And this is good news for us, that God decides what's right, because God is both wise and loving. But it should also be a gut check for us, because we often decide for ourselves what justice is. We, we look to, to our culture or our tribe's wisdom or our party's political platform or our feelings or what's easiest for us to decide what things should be. We rely on our partial and frail perspective to decide what's right. And so for us, doing justice requires humility to acknowledge our blind spots and the ability to listen to God and follow his leading. And so I've digressed a bit here, but I think it's helpful to understand just what justice means. So we see what it means when Isaiah says that the servant is just. It means that God is in the business of setting things right, restoring things to his good intentions. And so the servant's job is to confront a broken world and transform it into what it is meant to be. And it says here that the servant will set things right, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. It says he will bring forth justice to the nations. And Isaiah's listeners needed to hear that the justice wasn't a zero-sum game where only one group can receive their due. This song is a stunning expansion of God's love, not just for one people, but for the whole world. It is good news for us all that the servant will bring forth justice. I mentioned earlier that we're thinking about application today at two levels, right? Asking, what would it mean for me to believe these things about Jesus? And then how do I imitate these things? And so here, I first want to ask, do you believe that Jesus is just? That he's committed to setting things right? No, really, do you? When you look around and you see things in our world like 
like refugees in cages, or, or systems that penalize people because they don't have money, or just the daily unfairness in your own life or someone else's life, do you ever find it hard to believe that God really cares about justice? I had a moment like that that stopped me short a few weeks ago. I was praying for God to intervene in some injustices that just feel incredibly messy and intertwined. And it was like I heard God say, you don't really believe I care about this, do you? You're praying, but but you don't think I'll really bring change. And it was a gut check for me. Because it's so easy to look at the world and struggle to believe that God really cares, that he'll really make anything right. But this song promises to us that Jesus is divinely equipped and destined to bring forth justice. It is on his heart. So we can live like God really does care, and he really does intervene. But also, we're called to take action ourselves. Because we're followers of Jesus, we're meant to look like him. And so God is calling us to our own small actions to set things right to restore broken relationships, to protect those who are vulnerable. And I want to be careful here not to encourage you to rush into the first idea you have of this must be justice. Because again, God determines justice, not us. And so it takes humility to recognize our blind spots and seek God's will. It takes prayer and listening to God's word and also to people who can see things that we can't especially listening to the vulnerable, those who most often need for things to be set right. In my life, that's involved a lot more listening to Christians of color who have experienced injustices that I'm often totally oblivious to as a white person. So we need to listen. But when God's standard of right is clear, justice takes action. Maybe for you, it would involve advocacy for someone in your life who's experiencing a wrong, standing up for someone. Maybe it involves generosity or giving an opportunity to someone you know who has need. Maybe it involves looking up candidates in the next round of local elections coming up in a couple of months and voting for officials that will help administer rightly. I don't know what it is for you, but but Lent is historically a time where the church makes space to listen to God. And so maybe even in this next week, You might choose to make space to ask God where he's calling you to do the action of justice in a small way, as a little picture of God's great servant. Okay, so we've seen so far one way that Isaiah unboxes the servant for us. He tells us that the servant will bring forth justice. He acts to set things right. But as we continue on, we see that the servant doesn't administer justice in the way that we might expect. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bent reed he will not break off, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. 
The way that the servant carries out his work is not the way a CEO manual or a political strategist would suggest at all. For one thing, the servant doesn't draw attention to himself. Verse 2 says he doesn't cry out or raise his voice. He's not talking just to be heard. Like, what? One commentator says he's not shouting people down. His style is not self-advertisement or picking fights for the sake of it. And Isaiah's listeners might have heard that and thought, what? How is he going to achieve anything if he's not going to make a bunch of noise? Because in that world, you bring justice by making decrees and proclamations, or you go out and you conquer your enemies and you force them to do what's right. How does anyone quietly bring forth justice? We might ask that in this moment. We live in a culture that's obsessed with getting attention. The louder, the better. Shouting people down is how you build that platform to get things done. And often, for for a lot of us, pursuing justice is just a cover for promoting ourselves. Our virtue, or, or our understanding, or that we're right. But the servant is different. He's gentle. He's more focused on the act of bringing justice than on getting attention. And I think that tells us something profound. That seeking justice doesn't have to be harsh or loud. It will often involve speaking, but it does not have to be harsh. So the servant is quiet on this mission, but verse 3 takes it even further. It says, a bruised reed he will not break off and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. These are are evocative images. A bruised reed, like like a bent twig, so easy to just snap. It's fragile. A barely smoldering wick, something just about to go out, maybe putting out more smoke than light or heat. Together, I think these make a pretty powerful image of, of the wounded, of the vulnerable, of the burnt out in the world. It's, it's victims of abuse. It's people ground down, working more than 80 hours a week just to get by. It's people who are deconstructing their faith with just a flicker left. It's people wounded by their family or their community or their church, and barely hanging on. We live in a world that's full of bruised and burnt out people. And powerful leaders often ignore or exploit the bruised. And it would feel natural to snap a bent twig, to blow out a candle that's not smoking anywhere. But verse 3 says Jesus doesn't do that. He's gentle with them. What a paradox. He comes to act, to set all things right, But he does so in a way that doesn't even crush the most fragile twig. And that's the second thing that Isaiah wants to make so clear in unboxing the servant. He is gentle. He is compassionate to the hurting. And so again, I want to ask that application question. What does it mean for you to believe that Jesus is gentle? Maybe you need to experience that gentleness. Because you feel bruised by some of the things that happened in 2020. 
or maybe even some of the things that have happened in our church in the last couple years. Being bruised often leads to smoldering, to burning out. And we're in an age of deconstruction where lots of people are reevaluating their beliefs and wondering whether to stay with Jesus at all. And maybe some of the things you've experienced in your life have raised questions, and your faith feels like a flicker. I've had stretches where I've felt like that. And the world's response to vulnerability is to shout it down or ignore it or exploit it. But that's not Jesus' response to you. He won't crush you for being hurt. He won't snuff you out if you have doubts. He's still here, and he will faithfully make things right. And so if you're struggling today, know that Jesus won't abandon you. Seek out loving community who can process with you. Don't go it alone, but look to the gentle servant. But then in addition to believing that Jesus is gentle, we've got to ask ourselves, how can we imitate that? What would it look like for us to pursue justice in a way that isn't loud or demanding or about centering our voice? Make no mistake, there are times that that putting things right requires us to speak out. And there are times that justice will bring us into conflict in a world that is deeply broken. But we shouldn't be raising our voices in self-advertisement or using them to crush others who disagree with us. Maybe gentleness in your life it looks different. Maybe it just means coming to see no one around you as useless or past compassion. Not even your ex-roommate who said something really insensitive on Twitter about you. Maybe it means responding to, to hurt and angry people who come to you with humility and a listening ear instead of dismissal or a list of rebuttals. Gentleness definitely means coming to the aid of those who are hurting, learning to see where they're coming from, showing them kindness. Whatever it looks like for you, know that Jesus is calling you to a life of gentleness toward others. Okay, we started out this morning with the question, who is the servant? How does Isaiah unbox him? And we've seen so far that overwhelmingly, the first four verses of Isaiah 42 point to two realities about this servant. He is just, committed to the work of making things right, and he's gentle, carrying out that work in a way that treats the wounded with care and dignity. I want to point out one more thing here. Isaiah promises to his listeners that the servant is destined to succeed. We see that in verse 4. It says, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands, that's like the ends of the earth, will wait expectantly for his law. He won't be disheartened or crushed until his mission is complete. There's some wordplay going on in this verse. Disheartened and crushed are etymologically linked to that bent reed and the dimly burning wick. Um, Isaiah is saying that Jesus will experience the same pressures and evils that break and wound us, but they wouldn't overcome him. He would be subject to the same struggles we face, but he would keep going to make things right. 
And so we know he's, he's determined to succeed, but we also know in verse 1 that God says he's put his spirit on the servant. And that's really important. If you remember uh, over the last couple of semesters, our series on Judges or 1 Samuel, you might remember that when God called a leader to do a very important work, he would often send his spirit on that leader, empowering them to finish the mission. So when Isaiah says that, that the servant has God's spirit, we know that the servant is going to complete that mission. He's got everything he needs to do it. The servant is full of the spirit and he is sealed, it says, with the delight of God. He is God's beloved. And if that rings a bell, that's because verse 1 has a striking parallel with the baptism of Jesus. Here's how Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17 puts it. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that's where I want to close by observing that Isaiah 42 is the perfect picture of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the gentle and just servant. Think about it. Jesus set things right his whole life. He healed people, restoring bodies. He cast out demons. He was unabashedly bold in exposing the hypocrisy and harm caused by the religious leaders of his day who used their authority as a cover to take from the vulnerable. But Jesus, at the same time, he was gentle. Although his ministry was powerful, it wasn't about drawing attention to himself. He touched the outcasts of society and invited them to eat with him as trusted friends. He was gentle with prostitutes and those who colluded with the oppressive authorities. He was patient when his own followers were clueless and hurtful. Jesus was unfailingly gentle. And Jesus persisted. Despite misunderstandings and public opposition, the rejection of his own hometown, he persisted all the way to the cross, the ultimate act of setting things right. Because on the other side of the cross was justice people restored to God. And just as Jesus is filled with the Spirit and is God's beloved, he gives us the identity of God's beloved and fills us with the Spirit and sends us out to do the work of putting things right. And then one day, on the other side of Christ's return, he brings justice for all. And hundreds of years before any of this happens, God, through Isaiah, tells us what's going to happen. What a well-made plan. And I'm so incredibly excited for the next few weeks as we look at the rest of the servant songs and this story unfolds and we see more detail about just who this servant is. But today, I just want to invite you to marvel at who Jesus is in Isaiah 42. And I want to encourage you to make space this week to listen to God and to ask him for help to see Jesus this way. And to ask God what it means for your heart and for your life for Jesus to be gentle and also just. Maybe even want to write down the first four verses of Isaiah 42 and just think about them this week and let that truth soak in. 
May it move you to action to be like this servant. Let's pray.